This is Talking Beats. I'm Daniel Lelchuk, and I welcome you. Go ahead and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join us at Talking Beats Podcast on social media to keep the conversation going. On today's program, violinist Ray Chen, one of the world's most admired classical musicians. Whether he's playing in Chicago or Shanghai, he brings a rare combination of enthusiasm, vitality, and heart to his performances. The winner of a number of major prizes, the musician is also a specialist at reaching out across generations and cultural borders. He's recently out with a brand new album featuring the music of Bach, about which he writes, it reminds us that humanity struggles onwards despite the odds. I'm pleased he's joining me. Ray Chen, welcome. Thank you, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here. You picked six movements of solo Bach. Why solo Bach and, and why these movements? Well, solo Bach has always been, for me, and for many musicians, I would imagine, a reflection. It's kind of a bit like a, a mirror, or maybe perhaps even better, like water, since it seems to take to whatever shape the player, the musician uh, is. So Bach, and uh, you know, it can be played many different ways uh, on many different instruments. I think that other composers, even Mozart, uh, have to be played on a specific, when he writes a certain voice for, let's say, a soprano, the queen of the night cannot be sung, you know, by a baritone. It just doesn't sound the same. But Bach, I think Bach's a little different. You know, his music, if written for violin, can be played on piano and or an organ. And I think, uh, you know, he himself played all these instruments. And that was probably a large reason why. And um, so, you know, recording this album in my home, I might add, during quarantine was was quite a challenge. But in the end, I, I went with Bach because I felt like that's what people needed. His music best represented the type of comfort and uh, solace that we find in music. And that's why I actually ended up uh, calling the the album, the title of the album, Solace. You mentioned something that I wanted to bring up later, but you brought us right to it. So you said that Bach could be played many different ways. Imagine that you're talking to an audience, people who have no idea what that means. What does that mean? So like I said, I think that Bach can be played across different mediums, which means different instruments, uh, and still retain the integrity of its original meaning. Take, for example... Oh, piano to organ. That's a that's keyboard to keyboard. Very simple, uh, easy to understand. Most composers would probably work out well, more or less, in that sense. However, Bach works especially well because uh, at the time, you know, the keyboard, or the piano, as we know it, it was uh, actually. Uh, just starting from, you know, there was the harpsichord, the, the the three main keyboard instruments that we know today, harpsichord, organ, and then, of course, the piano. Back in Bach's time, he was still starting out with the, uh, people were still playing the, the harpsichord and the organ. And the piano, as we know it today, wasn't yet invented. Bach, of course, wrote uh, the Hammerklavier. That's what it was called, like, basically the hammer piano. <laughs> and... Um, he wrote a set of, of, of pieces for that. And um, for that in itself, I think that because he had to 
adjust and bring, you know, across different mediums just within the keyboard family already, uh, bring that sound, each one having a very different sound. You know, the organ, it's a sustained instrument. The the harpsichord, it's plucked. Whereas the the piano, as we know it today, that's that's with hammers, you know, so that's hit. It's more percussive. It, it's it's very different and a very different sound, even though to most people's minds, oh, you, you think of the keyboard as like, well, what you see, the black and white keys as being looking more or less the same, but the sound is very different. And that's where music is, uh, well, it can be very powerful, different instruments that it's all about that sound, what you use it for. And so for Bach, I think he having to contend with those three very different sounds was used to, you know, having his music played across different mediums. And so when I say that Bach is one of the few composers who truly understands those different perspectives, and he, I think he would always write in a way, he would always compose in a way that was somehow just worked for everything. And I'm, I don't, you know, pretend to be, a, you know, I'm just a, a mere interpreter, a, a conduit, let's say, of, 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 you know, these great composers. I, I'm just offering even just a, as, a, as a listener, even, and someone who knows how to play the violin. Uh, I don't pretend to try and understand how he did that, but I can just tell you that as a listener, as a, as a musician, it works somehow. <laughs> Speaking of... The way you're playing it, you know, there's a a lot of uh, wonderful grace and flexibility in this recording. And I, I think people who are used to hearing Bach, who've been listening to the solo violin works uh, for their lifetimes, uh, will will find a, a sort of refreshing, as I say, flexibility here in, in the timing, uh, in any case, which I found very nice. So, Ray Chen, what else have you uh, been doing since March? I, I imagine it didn't take you uh, the entire spring and summer to record six movements of Bach. Really, what's what's been going on? Well, I think these unprecedented times have been a challenge for everyone. And uh, for musicians especially, I think that creativity has, uh, well, has been endangered. It's very difficult. And I might say that, I might like to add that that's probably due to the way we're educated, we're we're sort of in a way brought up as classical musicians that most institutions, these conservatories, you know, esteemed places, you know, the holy grails of where you go and study don't necessarily prepare, best prepare us or haven't changed the curriculum. I, I believe that they are currently doing so because we're, you know, even pre-COVID, that they're just not, they weren't best, like the, the best places to prepare musicians for the 21st century with, you know, the internet, social media, stuff like that. Anyway, going back to your original question, what, what I've been up to is sort of spending more time in those areas that, you know, I've always been quite active in, but you know, social media, as much as, you know, the average person might just scoff at it and be like, oh, well, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, well, let's say the average classical musician. I, I do think that the average person nowadays uh, does realize how important it is, but it is really a science. I do feel like it's, uh, you're dealing with a large group of people and you're really trying to understand what 
what they want, what they need. And sometimes those two things are very different, you know, hence why we have different platforms for different people. But then what they want and then what they need and trying to shape that. I mean, you can see it, it, it goes beyond just entertainment. I mean, it goes into politics. It goes into, uh, you know, product advertisement, product placement. And for a musician to, to be familiar with that, you know, suddenly, I mean, forget that we are supposed to just walk on stage and play. You can't do that anymore. You have to have an awareness that extends far beyond the music um, in order to, I would say, yeah, have a career these days. So I've been sort of investigating that, <laughs> getting into that lately. You've highlighted just now two ways in which uh, unfortunately, I, I would describe it as as classical music being quote divorced from society at large, and and the two ways you've just highlighted, and I, I want to put a a finer point on one is in the preparation, in the curriculum, in the way in which the finest music schools train their students right as they're on the brink of going into the field professionally. That's one, and the second one is the relationship classical music slash classical musicians slash classical music institutions have with social media. This seems to be a, quite a large problem. In fact, I've always said over the past few months that both conservatories and symphonies uh, and classical music at large in this country, uh, with rare exception, has been caught rather flat-footed and extremely cumbersome and slow to respond. I agree with you there. I mean, there's the industry is large has i think had a lot of catching up to do and in recent times it it has been doing that i would say you know perhaps awkwardly at first but there are definitely orchestras and institutions out there that are leading the way i feel like the west coast is definitely kind of at least in america is uh leading the way in terms of being on the forefront of combining or bringing, let's say, bringing classical music into the 21st century and having it be relatable, this grand old tradition be still relatable and fresh for newcomers and reaching out to younger audiences. I think that the West Coast has been a, a great sort of leader in that respect. And surprisingly, Europe actually has been doing really well as well. Germany, just like somehow Berlin I see that as also a beacon of, of uh, it sets a great example of, of, of the future of what classical music looks like as well. Yet steeped in tradition, yet still, you know, very, very charismatically fresh. I think that that is uh, something that we've all sort of, we can all look at and um, aspire to. Um, for myself, I've, yeah, I was thinking about this just yesterday, thinking that, you know, when I first started doing all this social media, let's say, let's call it the extra stuff besides, you know, performing and touring. When I first started doing this, my goal was simply, you know, back in 2014, not so long ago, I might add, was just to show my goal was, hey, let's try and show a, a friendlier side of classical music. Because I think that, you know, musicians have a lot to offer. We, we're quite humorous people, if I may say so myself. <laughs> we are, we have a, we were, you know, we're charismatic. We, but we don't get to show that because we're 
usually just playing, performing, and then walking off the stage and that's it. Maybe occasionally you might, you know, get an interview, but for the most part, most musicians don't, you know, st there's the stereotype that classical music is for old, rich people. For the most part, yeah, it, because you have to, that is sort of true because you have to, it's a learned thing. It's an acquired taste. That just means that we haven't done better. We can do better in terms of reaching out and introducing people to this. So so that was actually my first, my original like goal. My original mission was simply that. But then over the years, it has evolved because I would say that with the help of social media and people, you know, catching on uh, eventually that yeah, that sort of, that's no longer so much the primary goal. That nowadays, my goal is uh, to continue doing that, but to also uh, really invest in music education. That I believe that music education can really make a difference in not only classical music's future, but also just in general. Maybe you've heard of the El Sistema program that Gustavo Dudamel uh, is famously from, started in Venezuela. That has just, you know, it, it started as a way to keep kids off the street. You know, I mean, how cool is that? And then to just after school when their parents might still be working, might not get home until 5 or 6 p.m., you're, but you're out of school from like 2.30 or 3, 3 p.m., what are you going to do? Let's invest in a classical music program and, you know, have these kids come in, you know, we, we provide them with, with instruments, uh, teachers, and they learn music. And so many places, uh, particularly those uh, areas with uh, sort of underprivileged communities have adopted this. Uh, on the flip side, classical music was always sort of privatized. It was always like, oh, you know, I, I myself am one of those kids that was lucky enough to grow up in a middle-class family where we could afford private lessons, you know, extracurricular activities. My mom stayed at home. But for, for those kids on the other end where both parents might be working, they, uh, you know, otherwise, where would you go? You'd be literally just hanging out and maybe causing trouble. Instead, there's... There's a great program, you get to learn music, and real stars, real amazing musicians that have actually impacted, and by real, I don't mean like, oh, the rest aren't real. I mean like people who have now become the leaders of this industry came from this particular program. So that's incredibly cool to see. So that has been my mission as well, just trying to best support that, you know, you're using my platform to try and at times try and pivot that help leverage help just fundraise all that sort of stuff that has become my primary goal now what do you think is going to happen no one can predict the future but obviously whenever i hear the phrase quote go back to normal that that is not in the cards and i think people are slowly starting to realize that's not in the cards even in places that have done very well in containing the spread of the virus for example you see tiny uh, minuscule audiences and you see a small amount of performers on stage all wearing masks that's not exactly returned to normal what's going to happen with teaching it's it's important to you you're 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 great at communicating with young people you seem to have a great rapport with young people but talk about how you were taught talk about how you were taught physically how a teacher would come over and adjust your elbow about the idea of hearing your teacher play up close, live, 
hearing the grit, hearing the passion and the blood and the sweat from, from your teacher at two feet away, what's going to replace that? I mean, nowadays, Zoom lessons just don't quite cut it, do they? I mean, in terms of, a, of learning a craft like, like, like music or really anything that is hands-on, an instrument, I would imagine, imagine trying to learn sports over over video <laughs> it just it just wouldn't work right i mean you can once you have the basics yeah you can definitely pick up tips i think that music education has benefited a lot thanks to social media and and its accessibility however yeah what is the future going to entail for for teachers and 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 how is the classroom going to change i think that's been a, been a topic that many of us have have often you know thought wondered at least personally for me that even extends to performances you know we look at the nba what they're doing right now you know where they're just all in the nba bubble of uh what is it disney world they're there and there's no audiences you know they're projecting audiences onto uh screens <laughs> the ones who have sort of like bought you know subscription tickets I wonder if that'll happen in classical music. I think it's a it's an interesting thing, but you know, they're they're protected. Obviously, classical music is not a billion dollar industry, so it's not going to I think or at least each let's say institution is probably I mean, it's going to be hard to make the same sort of arrangements. However, I think that Similar ideas can probably be implemented. And who knows, maybe this will propel, you know, VR and AR education. If similar ideas to the NBA uh, or to NFL, uh, which obviously can survive based on advertising and TV contracts, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's already too late, at least for now, for most of the symphonic institutions and even the smaller uh, chamber institutions in this country. So when you say maybe there's a future, I, I, I wonder, I, I, I think you may be right. Maybe there is a future there, but I think that future isn't beginning yesterday. It should have begun yesterday. And it's going to be very hard now to drum up the attention, frankly, the money that's required in, in times of, frankly, larger world issues. It's like when I had Drew Faust, who is the president of Harvard, and she said, we wanted a vaccine yesterday. And I'm, I'm thinking of that for now. Orchestras and institutions should have been there yesterday. And now, for the time being, I wonder how they'll make the case. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more, Daniel. That, that's been something that, as a, as a younger musician, I mean, as a young artist, I've been trying to push. And it, <laughs> it has felt like you know, for for the better part of many years and that mo for the most part, yeah, that it was falling on deaf ears. But on the flip side, I want to stay positive. You know, we can always talk about the negative sides of things, but on the flip side, after people feel safe, after this is all over, and when people feel safe enough to come back to the concert halls, I do think that we will see a resurgence in classical music. And I think it, the pendulum will just completely swing in the opposite direction. I think until that moment, it's about, it's about surviving. It's about making sure that people don't forget about this industry, about providing 
about proving ourselves even. Why should we survive, right? That is such a sensitive question to ask. And you know, most people, well, of course, how, how dare you even put that out? But I mean like, really, yeah, the recordings are still gonna be there. Why, no, what I mean is why should you as a particular institution, you know, insert any institution survive? Well, these are real people. Yes, but you know, let's, let's address that sort of now. Like you said, let's address that yesterday. Let's address that at least now. We couldn't get it done yesterday, so let's do it right now. I just want to put a, put a finer point on something you, you've said because it's, it's very exposed. When you say, why should we survive? Why should Institution X survive? And, and, it, and it sort of, in, in a way, ironically blows away the myth or the statement that classical music is elitist and it's only for the rich and powerful because, frankly, there's very few industries that have been as forgotten in, in this period as live music, as Broadway, as opera, as, as classical music. So one, one wonders if, if it really is so elitist and appeals only to, <laughs> to rich and powerful. Where are the powerful people? Where are the powerful people? I'm, I'm, I'm chuckling because of the irony here, who, who, who say, yes, we need Orchestra X. We really need it. So the musicians, the management have to find a way to say, as you say, this is why we have to keep the doors open somehow. It seems an almost impossible dance to get correct. Well, you know, Daniel, it, it, you know as well as I do, you know, with your background in classical music, you know this industry as well as I do, that ironically, despite the elitist mantle that classical music sort of had placed on itself, it was always trying to prove its existence. It was always fighting for its, its, its existence. <laughs> there was always a question of why. I, I, I feel like that only perhaps lately that, and I mean more, more like maybe from the, let's say the vinyl record period to the, the, the peak of um, compact di disc, like so CD recordings, did classical music suddenly become so powerful that it kind of forgot itself. It kind of just went way over. Suddenly the industry had you know, millions and millions of dollars, like record labels, and and just just more money. That I mean, I I've heard, I'm sure you have as well. Just just stories of the heyday of those record label and the record like industry of back then and the classical music industry in, in general. And I think that and I think that they just took it for granted. I think that we forgot as an industry like where we were and and we thought that it would continue forever and even nowadays you know you can still see remnants of that that we're still cruising a i mean perhaps not due to covid i mean i think this pandemic has sh definitely shaken things up but for a long time we we're just kind of cruising and just doing the minimal kind of <laughs> that's that was my impression of it so I think that, you, you know, we, yeah, you're, you make a great point. Elitist, is classical music elitist? Yes, but also no. <laughs> yeah, yes, but also no. Um, Ray Chen, you mentioned recordings. Let's talk for a minute, and you mentioned optimism before, so I'm, I'm going to put those two in a sentence together. 
What recordings from the past or from right now make you really optimistic? What recordings do you absolutely love to put on? Any kind of music doesn't have to be our field. Oh well, I mean, as a as a classical musician, I listen to a lot of classical, but. Then when I'm not working, I like to not listen to classical music <laughs> to sort of feel a sense of balance and also be inspired so that when I come back to it, it's just like any kind of other job. I think that most people, even if they love what they do, it's important to always strike a balance and to step away from it. At least it gives you, at the very least, perspective. For me, I love listening to all different kinds of music. I've been recently uh, getting really into lo-fi so lo-fi is a genre, for those of you who might not be familiar with it, that has become very popular in the pandemic. It's a little bit of a mixture of slowed down hip hop and with jazz elements and, and very sort of dreamy. As, as you know, the Gen Z would say, or, or even millennials would say, it's a vibe. It's definitely a vibe. <laughs> and you... <laughs> And you listen to it, and it's just it's just great. So I've been actually recently not only listening to that, but also um, producing, uh, helping produce tracks in the lo-fi genre as well. Uh, so you know, in the meantime, we've got we were talking about Bach, not to you know Johann Sebastian Bach solo works for violin, you know, and now we're talking about yeah. There's also myself, Ray Chen, the lo-fi producer. <laughs> so Ray, <laughs> Which, this is. This is what I was getting at before when I said you, you, you sort of moved around the question when I said before, very simply, other than recording six tracks of Bach, what have you been doing since March? Now we have the answer. You've been producing lo-fi. We got it. Thank you. Oh, well, not only that, I've also been doing, yeah, like I said, sorry for skirting around. That, I, I, that was one question where I suddenly, you know, at, at, by the end of it, what I was saying, I was like, what was the original question again? And I, I noticed that you kind of paused and I was just like, you know what? I, I failed that one, but that's okay. I'm glad we're back to it now. Thanks for refreshing me. What have I been doing? Right? Thanks no, for we, refreshing we, me. What we've, re doing, we've rectified that. Right? So you've been producing lo-fi. This is the, where can we hear what you've been doing? Or, or is, is that, is that a secret? So the lo-fi thing is not too widely known, I have to say. So for your audience, that's a, you know, we're, we're just slowly, I'm slowly kind of hinting it here and there, leaking it a little bit. Um, <laughs> and I've also, uh, it, you know, oh, that, that's going to come out probably in, in a month or so. I can't, can't release it too close to the Bach album. You know? <laughs> My uh, classical music record label, would uh, Universal, would not be happy with that. I've also been doing other stuff. Uh, I created a community online. Uh, have you heard of Discord? Discord is this, it's kind of a little bit like Slack. You know, you, people use Slack for work. It's more of a... Uh, workspace community environment kind of you know you build projects together slack or maybe Basecamp, those kinds of things but discord is primarily used by gamers and it's sort of you got your it's like reddit but live and it it's it's constantly going you've got your chat your different chat threads everyone's there um online the people are talking about different discussions under let's let's call the server so mine happens to be just under my name ray chen violin because i'm creative like that not <laughs> but <laughs> i just like did that and you know this i i had never heard of this platform until pretty much this year at the beginning of this year i went ahead and created this thing i didn't think much of it i was just like look for me 
what makes what what I love about social media. If you imagine a dot in the middle, you're as an artist, you're the dot or the product or the company, whatever it is. Average social media is that dot sending and around that dot is a circle. And average circle, average social media is like when you send out information. So it's like, you know, hey, I've got this album. I'm, I'm, this is dropping today. It's coming out. It's releasing. Or I've got these concerts or whatever, right? And, and, and the level above that is when the circle, that's your audience, starts to respond back. Yeah, in social media terms, they like to call that, oh, uh, engagement. They use those kind of buzzwords like engagement. He has a high engagement with his or her followers or, or, or traction. It's just, that post is getting a lot of traction. So yeah, <laughs> these, are, these are the social media buzz, buzz terms. And then occasionally what's really what makes even higher level social media is when your audience starts talking to each other and it becomes greater that whatever it is, your community becomes more important than even the artist itself. And that is uh, great social media, or it becomes equally important. And so Discord is all about that. It's about community. So, you know, you have your different chats, you have voice chats, which are sort of like, you know, anyone can join and you and you can use, you know, voice instead. And and I thought, okay, this is you know usually used by gamers, but what if I renamed these voice chats into practice rooms, practice rooms one to 12, essentially setting up virtual practice rooms. Cause what I got the most, the most kind of like complaints I got, or just people sharing their thoughts and emotions at the beginning of the pandemic was, I have nothing to practice for. You know, I have a predominantly young audience. They're usually learning an instrument or they're, they're going to become professional musicians. Some of them are just learning it for the fun of it. And they're all like, yeah, I have nothing to practice for. And I said, okay, I noted. And then I thought, well, this gives people something to practice for. If I set up these virtual practice rooms, first of all, you know when someone else is practicing too, next to you in the next room, so to speak. But then let's make it so that people can listen to you too. I would make it so that there's like a limit of maybe 10 or 15 people. And so certain people love practicing for others and other people love listening to those practice. So I was always of the of the former, you know. For me, I, when I was a kid practicing, my mom would be in the kitchen or she'd be, you know, kind of just doing her, her work around the house. And I would just be, it, it would just feel so much better to be practicing like that someone was listening, an audience was there. And uh, so this, this has served both purposes, I would say, of the motivation and also just community, reaching out to people during this time when we all felt so isolated and, and alone. That has taken up a pretty big chunk of my time, I would say, just maintaining that, because you can imagine it's 24 hours. We have a list of moderators that keep the chat, you know, a safe space and all that kind of stuff. It's, 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 full, it's full time. <laughs> You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think a lot of people don't understand the communal aspect, not just of playing concerts with people, not just of being on stage and then going out to dinner afterwards and all, all the rituals that are associated with the act of, of being in classical music. But when you're in school, the special feeling you get when a friend knocks on your door of the practice room and says, here, can I play this for you? You know, there's there's something so intimate and so special and what you're highlighting i mean obviously you can't recreate it precisely and you may not even come close but but what you're trying to do is show that a there there is a point in practicing and b there are other people 
in your shoes. There, there are other people, you know, right next door, the room next door, the the the, the chat room, the, the conference room next door, and they're also playing a scale and they want to hear you. And that's something that's so special about being in music school, this interaction with the colleagues, with your peers. So, so you, you want to try out a Beethoven phrase and you say, hey, do you mind if, if I play for you for 30 seconds? And, and there's that intimacy that I, I can feel you trying to recreate Ray Chen, give us a few other music choices. You, you've now only mentioned lo-fi, which is great. I'm glad we talked about that. But what else What else uh, should we listen to, any genre, anything that makes it onto your playlist? Wow. You know, recently I did actually put together a playlist. Hmm, let me see on this playlist. I mean, it ranges also from, of course, you've got the normal classical stuff. But I, for me, music always, it serves a purpose. If I'm relaxing, I'm going to listen to lo-fi. But if I'm in the gym, I listen to, let's say, hip-hop. Or actually, more recently, I've been starting to listen to heavy metal that uh, a friend of mine created. So it's by this band called Pentakill. But Pentakill is not a real band. It's just a band that was put together, comprised of video game characters, because it's actually uh, these characters from the game League of Legends. And uh, which is a, you know, very, very popular online game. And they just taken the whole, <laughs> you know, when video games like they, they commonly have backstories and you can learn the lore about, you know, certain characters and stuff. Well, well, this company, I remember Zelda on Nintendo 64 with the backstories. <laughs> Right, right. And, and you know, and usually there will be kind of like a film score or like a music soundtrack to the video game. Well, these guys took it to the next level. Not only do they have just soundtrack to the game itself, but there's also songs, specific songs. And then, and then they went even higher level than that. They made music videos and they made an entire band that doesn't even exist. But when it comes out with a release, they shoot to the top of that heavy like heavy metal charts it, it's crazy it's so it's so cool and uh it's kind of like heavy metal for those people who don't listen to heavy metal so for me it's like kind of perfect so that that's what i listen to in the gym but you know if i'm uh let's say trying to you know feel motivated what makes it really helpful is that a few of my friends are producers. So, for example, I'm friends with this guy called Mako. His name's Alex Seaver. M-A-K-O. He's just, you know, he's producing tracks as well. I, I know him from a million years ago. People who are listening are now going to see how how small the classical music world is because I, I, I went to a festival with him, I think, when I was in high school. So, okay, I know who you're talking about. The horn player, not the producer. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. He went to Juilliard. And later on, he, he became a an EDM slash, like, you know, like, just this kind of pop producer. And, but his kind of music gives me a sense of, oh, there's there's something more to it. And I think that, I don't know if that's the personal relationship because I know him as a friend or if it's because I know that he, he's actually using classical music influences in there. So his structure might be just a little bit longer. You know, he'll recently came out with a new track called Parables and I, I show it around to people and I'm like, do you, do you, do you feel anything different from this? And they're just like, no, but it's really, it's really cool. And I'm like, the meter, the meter is in seven. It's, it's not in, you know, usually tracks are in four, but that, or waltzes are in three. But he 
made this track and it's in seven. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One. So there's always this kind of like leaning towards the next downbeat. And it's so cool. Ray Chen, what are you looking forward to right now? We're going to go out on an optimistic note. So you have a new album out very recently, six tracks of Bach. Another project coming along that you haven't mentioned. Or what are you just looking forward to musically or otherwise? You know, I'm looking forward to positivity when the world can be a more positive place. When everyone, and that's not just myself. I mean, that's when everybody can feel safe and comfortable to create connections, to trust. I would love to see that happen. You know, I think that trust is probably the <laughs> the lowest in terms of where it's at ever uh, right now. I would love to see people just, yeah, for me, just people being decent and nice and, and just, you know, doing what they should, knowing what's right and um, without having to be told. I understand that there is this need for education, but sometimes that has also turned into cancel culture, you know, over-education. What started out as, like, you know, just trying to inform people can turn into something else when it's just weaponized, I say, on, on social media. Yeah, for me as a musician, I, I didn't realize what I love doing the most until more recently. And I always used to think, oh, I just love performing. I, you know, for me, I was never the type of musician that was like too, uh, let's say, detail oriented in terms of, you know, score studying and stuff like that, or like the history behind stuff that I had to learn later on. For me, it was always the performance part. But it wasn't until recently, very recently, that I discovered like, what about the performance part I love the most? And I finally realized that it's the people. I do music because of the people. I only want to become the greatest musician I can possibly be just so I can impact people more than I can now. That I can create an even more positive emotional reaction, uh, give them you know, more impact during performances or when they're listening to my recordings. That's, that's the main goal. And so for me, that will always mean that I guess a part of me will feel like, I used to feel like I was missing out, that I wasn't in the core of the music, but by being just outside or rather being with the people, I feel like it gives me perspective and community that I'm willing to trade rather than being in the in the source of it. <laughs> Ray Chen, I want to thank you for your insights and your beautiful violin playing, obviously, and, and just for the... Uh the candor of the conversation and stay safe thanks thanks so much daniel you too you've been listening to talking beats i hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on apple spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts the original theme music for this program is by ronald markham the producer of digital content is brian west the executive producer is doug christian i'm daniel lalchuk see you next time